During the World Wars, and particularly during the Blitz of Britain in World War II, physicians began describing a disease they initially called crush syndrome. People who suffered crush injuries during the bombing of London presented with dark-colored urine and kidney failure. Their condition appeared to improve with ample fluid resuscitation and, once available, dialysis. Today, our patient has rhabdomyolysis, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Flush Away the Crush, an Approach to Rhabdomyolysis. All right, time for a minute physiology. Rhabdomyolysis, literally translated from its Greek etymological origins, means breakdown of striated muscle. It helps to first explore this at a cellular level. Myocyte homeostasis relies on maintaining adequate concentrations of intracellular and extracellular substances, such as sodium, potassium, and calcium, and their transport across the cell membrane. Many of these processes require adenosine triphosphate, or ATP, to power transmembrane pumps. When muscle cells are in a particularly low ATP state, one consequence is their inability to pump calcium out of the cytoplasm. The increased cytoplasmic and mitochondrial concentration of calcium activates proteolytic enzymes, which then degrade the myocyte and cause muscle necrosis. This process can be triggered by multiple factors. Direct trauma to the cell, such as in crush injuries, or extreme muscle cell activity, such as in malignant hyperthermia, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, seizures, or even extreme exercise can lead to muscle necrosis. There are also various drugs that can cause increased usage of ATP, for instance, cocaine, or impair the use of ATP by muscle cells, for instance, statins. Immobilization can also cause rhabdomyolysis, as muscles may become ischemic with sustained compression. Inflammatory myopathies, endocrine disorders such as thyroid, adrenal, or pituitary deficiencies, and viral illnesses are other triggers for rhabdomyolysis. In rhabdomyolysis, the pathophysiology and clinical manifestations are not only a result of the myocyte breakdown itself, but also of the downstream effects of widespread muscle cell lysis. The damaged cells spill their contents into the bloodstream. This includes creatine kinase, also known as CK, an enzyme found most significantly in skeletal muscle tissue. Cells also release large amounts of oxygen-binding protein myoglobin and electrolytes, such as potassium and phosphate. What are the consequences of this? Patients can present with profound intravascular volume depletion due to third spacing caused by the influx of solute into the interstitium. Acute kidney injury may also be present as a result of renal vasoconstriction. Myoglobin can also precipitate and cause renal tubular obstruction, leading to renal damage. The release of potassium and phosphate by cells can cause significant hyperkalemia and hyperphosphatemia. Hyperkalemia can in turn cause cardiac arrhythmia or cardiac arrest. Hyperphosphatemia can lead to hypocalcemia because calcium gets bound by phosphate and sequestered into the tissues. However, serum calcium levels can be elevated later in the disease course 
due to the release of calcium from damaged tissues after phosphate levels normalize and release of parathyroid hormone in response to the initial hypocalcemia. In rarer cases, edema from damaged muscles and extravasation of replaced fluids can cause compartment syndrome, and other contents lysed by myocytes can even trigger disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC. So now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. An approach to rhabdomyolysis requires evaluation with history and physical exam, as well as identification of the triggers of the patient's presentation. Before assessing the patient, remember to start with vitals and general inspection. Always start by assessing the patient's ability to protect their airway. Are they obtunded, potentially after a seizure or drug use, or because of metabolic derangements? Next, assess their breathing and oxygenation. Remember to also assess circulation. Arrhythmias may be present with various electrolyte abnormalities. Pay particular attention to orthostatic changes as patients may present with profound intravascular volume depletion. Patients may alternatively present with peripheral edema and other signs of overload due to third spacing, but these patients are likely still intravascularly deplete. Next, be sure to consider details on history that might predispose someone to rhabdomyolysis. Broad categories to think about include trauma, medications, autoimmune, infectious, and endocrine etiologies. Pay close attention to details such as severe trauma or falls, extreme exercise, recent seizures, stimulant use such as cocaine or amphetamines, endocrine disorders, inflammatory myopathies, or viral illnesses. Identify risk factors for prolonged immobilizations, such as elderly patients after hip fractures, patients after prolonged operations, or comatose patients. Review the patient's medication list for common culprits such as statins or psychotropic medications, such as atypical antipsychotics, that can predispose to neuroleptic malignant syndrome. On history, patients may endure significant muscle soreness and dark Coca-Cola-colored urine. These details can help you clue in on your diagnosis. Important aspects of the physical exam include a head-to-toe inspection for any obvious signs of trauma, fractures, large hematomas, blistering, or discoloration of the skin, or other features of crush injury. Assess all limbs for sensation, peripheral pulses, pallor, or severe pain out of proportion to the exam to look for signs of compartment syndrome or ischemic limb. Don't forget about measuring urine output either. Let's talk about our workup. An elevated CK level, typically over five times the upper limit of normal, is the key laboratory abnormality correlating with rhabdomyolysis. CK levels are typically considered more useful than myoglobin, as myoglobin has a short half-life of two to three hours and thus may return to normal within six to eight hours. Myoglobin appears in the plasma before CK elevation begins and disappears while the CK levels are still rising. CK, on the other hand, has a half-life of one and a half days and rises within 12 hours of the onset of muscle injury. An elevated CK level peaks in one to three days and declines at three to five days after the initial event. Other markers of muscle injury 
such as elevated aminotransferases and lactate dehydrogenase, may also raise your suspicion for rhabdomyolysis. You may consider repeating a CK level every 8 hours after initiating treatment until levels begin to decrease. Don't forget to look for end-organ damage related to rhabdomyolysis, including lactate, blood urea nitrogen, as well as creatinine. Note that creatinine may be extremely elevated into the 1000s due to both AKI and conversion of the excess serum CK to creatinine, thus overestimating the severity of AKI. It's also important to look for ECG changes from severe electrolyte derangements. You may also see an anion gap metabolic acidosis from lactic acidosis due to anaerobic respiration and hypoxic muscles and accumulation of organic acids due to the patient's AKI. Monitoring urine output and urinalysis are the other important components of the workup of rhabdomyolysis, given that acute kidney injury is a common complication. And urine may appear a dark reddish-brown color. A dipstick may return positive for blood. However, further examination with urine microscopy after centrifuge will likely reveal an absence of red blood cells, consistent with myoglobinuria as the reason for the positive dipstick result. Urine microscopy may also reveal granular casts from tubular injury caused by myoglobin or uric acid crystals. Do not be fooled by a lack of urinary abnormalities. Myoglobin is cleared from the blood much faster than CK, and urine may be bland in up to 50% of patients. You may consider further workup to ascertain and begin to treat the underlying cause of the rhabdomyolysis. Consider appropriate imaging for those with clear signs of severe physical trauma, brain imaging, or EEG for those with seizure-related rhabdomyolysis, or a urine drug screen. In these patients for whom the etiology remains unclear after initial workup, inflammatory testing for autoimmune-related disorders, imaging with an MRI or an EMG, and genetic testing may be considered. The initial management of rhabdomyolysis includes ample volume resuscitation. Typically, patients should be administered a bolus of isotonic crystalloid up front and then maintained on maintenance fluids, targeting a urine output of greater than 200 mL per hour. The choice of fluid is controversial, and there is little evidence to indicate one is significantly superior to another. Be careful not to give excessive amounts of fluids to patients who are oliguric or aneuric or patients with a history of heart failure. There is some low-quality evidence for administrating isotonic bicarbonate. The rationale is to alkalinize the urine to mitigate tubular pigment injury. However, this has not been shown to consistently improve outcomes and its use is variable. In general, the rate of fluid resuscitation can be decreased if CK levels are trending down and the patient continues to maintain adequate urine output. Patients may also require correction of their electrolyte disturbances, namely hyperkalemia. Do not forget about administering one gram of calcium gluconate or calcium chloride to protect the cardiac membrane in life-threatening hyperkalemia. The indications for dialysis and AKI from rhabdomyolysis are similar to indications in other causes of AKI. Patients may require dialysis if there is refractory life-threatening hyperkalemia, refractory acidosis, or refractory volume overload. Lastly, 
It is also important to quickly identify and treat the underlying cause of rhabdomyolysis. Patients with severe crush injuries and or compartment syndrome likely require emergent surgery. Seizure-related causes require appropriate anti-epileptic therapy. If neuroleptic malignant syndrome is identified, treat with either bromocryptine, dantrolene, or benzodiazepines. If a medication is clearly identified as a cause, the benefits of continued use should be weighed against the risk of rhabdomyolysis recurrence. Time for a Medicine Minute. McMahon et al. at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston developed a calculator to predict the risk of death or AKI necessitating renal replacement therapy in patients presenting with rhabdomyolysis. This factors in a patient's initial serum CK, calcium, phosphate, bicarbonate, creatinine, age, sex, as well as the cause of their presentation. In the setting of patients admitted to hospital for rhabdomyolysis, This calculator shows good discrimination and calibration using easily available laboratory and demographic parameters and can be considered a helpful prognosticator early in the management of rhabdomyolysis. It is widely accessible online and on various phone apps. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Flush Away the Crush, an Approach to Rhabdomyolysis. This episode was written by Dr. Dhruv Krishnan, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Audrey Tran, general internist, and Dr. Samuel Silver, nephrologist. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Allison Lai, Leah Karinopoulos, and Zara Morali. Theme song by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe it wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you again soon.